The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Otherwise, class announcements. Um, sprint task lists due today. Hopefully, you all turned them in. Um, Plain is going to check that out um, and make sure that we have each team has a new sprint task list turned in. We're asking for one of those once a week because we want to know the state of your game as it is right now. Um, it's a lot of it is, is for our use to kind of track where your game is going and how your game is going. The actual format you're using isn't as important to us for this last project. Um, again, if you're using a non-standard format, um, at, at, once we get to the next um, product backlog um, presentation, which I believe is next week, but I could be wrong about that, um, it's in Stellar, uh, we'll be asking you about your project management process, what you've been using, how it's been working, what changes you've made, stuff like that, to know how you're tracking what you're doing and when you're doing it. Um, yeah, so today, um, I've got another minute, um, but today we're going to talk about story in video games. Um, then you have time to work in your class, and then at 3 p.m., Ed Barrett's class is coming in. We've got 18 folks coming in to playtest your games. Uh, remember, we did require you to have a playable digital build today. Um, please test that build. If that build does not get you the test data you need, also test another one. So if you, if you have a paper prototype and you want to test that, you can test that concurrently. Um, again, just like before, um, having three workstations open at each team would be awesome. It means everybody gets to play the games quickly and get out quickly so that you can then finish up working. Um, and you don't need to test each other's games. So, um, and actually allow the, our guests to test games first before you start testing each other's games today. Cool. Any questions about procedures and whatnots? All right, so we're going to talk about stories and games. Um, this is a lecture that I've adapted from a previous colleague of ours, Clara Fernandez-Vera. Um, she, studies, um, she studies adventure games. She studies games through the lens of theater. Um, so she's got a really interesting um, a view on play as performance. Um, but this is much more of a talk about what is usable for you right now in the games you're making uh, in this class. Uh, I'll start out with talking a little bit about um, bigger games, but then I'm going to move quickly into talking about things that are more useful for you all right now. So um, just a question for you. Do games tell stories? Yes, I see you nodded. Why? How? Well, I mean, obviously there are the games that are more narrative-heavy with like cutscenes and words and happening, but I feel like you can also easily convey stories just like with the images and the way the player interacts with the game itself. You kind of create a narrative within it. Great, you did my lecture. I'm done. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, any other ways games tell stories? So we heard cutscenes, we heard narrative, we heard words, we heard pictures. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, one more hand. Where? Yes. Yes. Game books, the the physical things around games. It's also really rare and hard to do. But it's really great when games can actually tell the story through the mechanics. Yes, absolutely. Telling the story through the mechanics. Uh, which game did you mention? Papers, please. Excellent. Um, so when we talk about games and stories, sometimes we think about these. You actually, you're, you're good. You mentioned some other types of games. Um, Final Fantasy XIII, Metal Gear Solid IV, both games, uh, kind of derided for, um, in certain circles, for the linearness of their games. Um, you start the game, you watch the movie, you hit some buttons, you watch the next movie, you hit some buttons. Some people like that. That's, a, that's a one way to play games. It's one, games, one kind of game that is out there. Um, not exactly the kind of games that we're making in this class, um, but also, not exactly the kind of games, um, not the only way to tell stories in games, as you just mentioned. Um, to make those kind of games, like in, in those, and we're calling them AAA games, if anybody's heard the, that phrase before, AAA just meaning expensive. Um, blockbuster. Um, the Marvel blockbuster movies are basically what's happened to film. Call of Duty is the, is the game version of that. Um, so they require many expensive art resources, artists, sound designers. We, we heard an artist talk in today, uh, talk, earlier this week about how art's important and why art is important. Um, 
and how difficult it is for one person to do all, sort, all those different kinds of tasks that are required for a complicated game. Um, also, just to note that um, those two games that I mentioned previously um, usually borrow techniques from cinema. So things like camera placement, lighting, visual effects and sound effects, a lot of those things are, they're borrowing concepts from cinema that have been proven to work in cinema and then just throwing them in the game because they know they work. So one way a AAA studio might think about making a, a game with story is, all right, so it's this balance between interactivity and narrative, right? Um, and then there's this cost. So think of that triangle as the cost. Um, costs money to make these games. And that money is generally either spent on people or it's spent on people or time. So people times time, basically. Um, and the idea is that, all right, so we've got this interactive stuff going on right here. The player presses buttons, great. We've got this narrative stuff here and I'm borrowing comedy and tragedy. Um, this is, when, when, I, when I say narrative, um, think back to your Aristotle, so plot, comedy, tragedy, melodrama. A lot of the AAA games tend to just basically be big melodrama pieces. Um, but it could be folk tales. That narrative could be, sometimes it has conflict, sometimes there's not conflict, sometimes there's a dramatic arc or not. Um, but yeah, so they say, all right, so we've got to balance the two, and how do we do that? Uh, State of the art AAA 2011, this is Arkham City. That's Batman, his parents are dead. Press X to pay your respects. <laughs> you press the X button, he places down the rows, you get a nice little cutscene reward, award with, reward with it, so you can see a little bit of a movie going on of him you know, being grim and putting down the rows. Um, but you also get a little achievement. So it's a reward, it's an Easter egg. Um, but it's a, it's a crucial backstory to the character, they put it in the game. Um, they spend a lot of money making that animation. Um, not all players are gonna see it, and when they do see it, it only lasts for a very short period of time. All right, so that was 2011, Let's, it's 2014. We're, we're, we've got really cool computers. We've got Xbox One, PS4. Here's state-of-the-art AAA 2014 Call of Duty Advanced War Warfare. We've got an upgrade. Hold X to pay respects. <laughs> Basically, it's a quick time event. Um, and we've seen quick time events with, with other games before. If anybody's played uh, Heavy Rain, um, if anybody's played the Shenmue games, um, Resident Evil games, things like that. Basically, you've got a video footage going on and you can press a button and it'll give you a new set of video footage. Um, so there's a lot of animation going on. There's a lot of co cost going into this. Um, I think the hope for this kind of thing, why it's hold X instead of press X, is by holding X, you're embodying that action. Um, you know, maybe you're grieving, maybe it's praying, maybe it's holding the button. Um, maybe the longer you hold it, the more you grieve. So maybe there should have been a score that was counting down how much grief you got. Um, but if you've read the internet about, about the game, you notice that, yeah, it hasn't quite worked out to the way that they might have thought it worked. All right, so you don't have AAA resources, so why did I talk about all that? And you should probably just give up on stories, right? I'm gonna say no, of course. That's why I'm talking about this for about another 45 minutes. Um, but some games don't need stories to be fun or have a meaning. Anybody recognize the pieces on the screen? Tetris, the Tetraminos of Tetris. Is there a story to Tetris? Some people say there is. And I'm talking about this Tetris too. There's not even color in that. You can't even tell what the tetrahominoes are once they hit the, hit the, the pile. They're just there. Um, and actually that might be that, I don't know, I think no, that bottom of the, that bottom row is the, the bottom of the, the bucket that's holding it. So our own MIT's Media Lab, um, Janet Murray, would say that Tetris is the monotony of the workday, of putting things in, the, in their places. Um, uh, another professor, Jim G, over at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, he says, Tetris is an escape into the very desire for order, control, and workable solutions that we have all the time. Um, some other less notable but equally valid people on the internet say that you know, it's the story of life. Um, it's never one, it always has an ending and that ending is your death. Uh, or the, the everything just piling up to, no, um, to the top. Um, because it was made in Russia, some people might say that it's a critique of communism maybe, or of sameness, or of bureaucracy. Although the creator, the Russian creator, Alexei Pajanov, would say, and he does say, that, that for him it's about playing on the edge of your abilities and about playing to a life well lived. So the point of, of all this stuff is people read patterns into most abstract things. So maybe you don't need story. Maybe you just give, some, give them some abstractness and, some, and then move on. Uh, Tetris was made 
1981, thereabouts on that one, 1983. I should have put that in the slide. Um, so that was, you know, 30-something odd years ago. What if they made Tetris today? Here's Tetris today, or one version of Tetris today. Um, why would somebody make a Tetris game with story? This is the Japanese-only Puyo Puyo Tetris. So it's taking two different game mechanics and splicing them together. Why would they put characters in the Tetris game? What's up? It might, yeah. And people are used to seeing characters. Possibly, yeah. Any others? Any other ideas? Yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Um, actually, we were just talking about this um, before class. Um, would Tetris be able to, would, would you be able to sell this today? Do you think this could sell today? I, you've never seen Tetris before. It's a brand new thing. You'd look it out. Maybe, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Has anybody played the game Hexagon or Super Hexagon? Yes? Does Hexagon, Super Hexagon have a story? Okay, then why is there a narrator and a voice? Why is she telling you? How does she talk? Kind of robotic? There's a little, there's a little bit of story. Why is the, the, the character a triangle? The, 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 the thing that you're moving on a screen. Why a triangle and not a square or a circle? Maybe. I'm going to argue that there's a little bit of, there's a, what's that? They're more sturdy than squares. If you smoosh a square, it turns into like weird fancy squares. There you go. There's little, little hints of story there. <laughs> yeah. Merchandise. Actually, yeah, especially with this one. Um, the, what do they call the, the characters when they make, like, Internet Explorer is a character. Is it Moe or is it a Tomo? Something Tan, yeah. Yeah, so Elton and, and other Elton, maybe. <laughs> All right, so that's story. That's, well, they're bringing in some story to that. Um, even better story can serve a gameplay purpose. Um, I'm going to argue that Pac-Man has a story. A, a noticeable story, right? There's cutscenes in this Pac-Man. But what's the story of Pac-Man? Where, like, where are the hints of story there? I guess it could be in how the enemies behave. Yeah, absolutely. And why, why did they give the characters names? Why, did, do the, why, did, why is Blinky Blinky and, or his, and his character, his personality, Shadow? Absolutely, they have, they have deterministic actions. Um, so I've given them a little bit of character, but that's going to help you identify one before the other. Like if anybody's played the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man, uh, my first experience with it, all the, all the ghosts had the same image. Um, you couldn't tell which one had which act type of action. They probably actually didn't have a uh, different AI. Um, it was a really difficult game for them to make. They had to make it in like a two or three weeks, I believe. All right, so. What do we gain from story? And this is, why, this is where I come in and say, this is what I think story is going to give to your games. Even if you're making a strategy game, it doesn't matter what kind of game you make, you're going to get something out of a story. Um, we understand our lived experiences of stories. Uh, so providing a story is going to help a player like, understand what's going on in the game. Uh, if you think about you know, what you've ever done in the past, you're always telling it to another person as a story. Uh, the way, you do, you, the way you, you're able to memorize things often is you're constructing stories in your head of things that you've done. Uh, it's events with causes. You're placing them together, you're finding patterns, and you're putting the story in there. And it helps you understand what's going on around you. Um, a story can help you explain the world to the player. It can also encourage the player to explore it. So if you've got something in the game that's, that's hidden later on, you want them to find it, you can use story to, to, to give them hints towards, this is, there's this cool thing coming up that you might want to check out. Um, on a parallel level to the explanation, stories provide consistency to the world. So if you've got various things going on within your game, the way you can kind of massage the, the differences between things going on, between the mechanics, is by covering that up with story, or rather embellishing and, and supporting it with story rather than covering it up. All right, so uh, a couple quick videos. Um, when I'm talking about story games, especially in this lecture, I'm mainly talking about games with story, not story-driven games. 
The games we talked about earlier, those were story-driven games. This is a game with a story. <coughs> The heroes. On the left, we've got Sophia. On the right, we've got Cassandra. I'm sorry, but I can't back down. I'm fighting words. Battle one, fight. Everybody recognize the band? Soul Calibur, yeah. I think it's three. It's from 2008 or 2010. I think Did catch what she said? Don't try to confuse me. Don't try to confuse me. So, KO, we get to the end. God, please forgive me. What is she talking about? Does anybody know what, what, she's, what she's saying there and why she's saying it? You might only know this if you've ever played, if you've played the game before and you're really, really into the game. So, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So, Cassandra is Sophia's sister. And they're fighting for the Soul Edge, for this demonic sword that's going to destroy the world. And she has to, to fight her sister and kill her sister to get to the sword in order to either, I think for Sophia's version, it's to save the world. Um, why didn't she work with her sister? It's a fighting game, who knows. Um, if I, were, I, I meant to update the slides to something uh, a more modern audience might understand. Um, in particular, League of Legends does this kind of thing a lot, right? There's story moments going on in games. You had mentioned um, a, a moment in the game. Characters on the same team, I believe, they, they have different voice prompts or different vocal lines that they will say to acknowledge that they have a history. Um, so Does that help you play the game better? Yeah, no, no, gameplay no. It's a valid use of story, but it's not an efficient use of story, especially for your kinds of games, right? It doesn't directly connect, the, the story doesn't directly connect to the player's experience with the game. But it is something players like. Uh, like we talked about with characters, like we talked with, with the merchandise. And in, in, particular, in particular for this game, for Soul Calibur, why is Soul Calibur doing this but Street Fighter isn't doing this? Um, Soul Calibur stands, itself, stands apart from the other fighting games um, by having these complex storylines um, that are actually visible to the player within the game. S Street Fighter does have complex storylines, but they're like lar largely um, fan service or outside of the game, merchandise, books, things like that. You, don't see, you maybe see a little cutscene or two at the end of the game but not while you're playing it. And also to, to really enhance the single player experience of the game. That's, that's actually how I know the Soul Calibur series is I played it single player um, because they, they added an RPG to it that was really basic and stupid, um, but it made the story a little bit more, uh, more uh, concrete. They took the RPG out, that's when I stopped playing the game because that story didn't have any, any, there was no reason for that story in the gameplay anymore. All right, so. Uh, all right, so I, I was asking you about games telling stories and how, how do games tell, tell stories. And what I'm going to say now is technically games don't exactly tell stories, if you think about it. Like, who is the storyteller in a game? You! So it's not storytelling, it's story building. The, the player, the, the game, the designer, the developer is giving you the tools to build a story of your own. Uh, why, we, why we say they're different? Um, so just to, to, to compare and contrast, storytelling is continuous. There's a one-way communication. It is from auteur and author to the player. Um, the order, and in, more in particular, the order of events and disclosure of an information is determined by the author of the game. I'm going to show you this, and now I'm going to show you this, and now I'm going to show you that. Uh, story building is more fragmented. And it could be as simple as, I'm going to show you this. Now you can go see all these other things, but you know, I'm going to pull you back, and I'm going to show you this next thing. And you have to see those two things in order. I'm in a more open-oriented game. You could see everything all when at, at any point of time, depending on when you like it. Um, rather than a one-way communication, there's collaboration between narrative design and the, and the players. Anybody heard the term narrative design before? Or the, or the, title, the job title, narrative designer? What do you think that is in a company? And let's say Rational. Rational has narrative designers. Um, she was actually a, a CMS student uh, for, for Infinite. What would a narrative designer do in, in Bioshock Infinite? A little bit. I think Ken wrote a lot of that. Ken, uh, the the director wrote a lot of that. But yeah, they 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 touched that though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I guess figuring out how that fits in and how it's connecting into Yep, yep, they touch that too. The other thing they do is you've got a level designer and you've got a writer. And right in between, you've got the narrative designer on some companies. This isn't, this isn't for all companies. This is just for some. Um, and in particular, this is how I understand how a rational works, right? Is level designer creates a level based on how a person's going to play it, um, how they're going to get through it, how they're going to get from point A to point B. Writer says, here's the story I need everybody to see, and here's all the elements I need them to see. Narrative designer figures out where within the level those things are going to exist. And we'll talk about that when we're talking about envir environmental design. Um, point, I'll point out a couple places where a narrative designer had uh, an active role in that game. All right, so I'm going to say that we don't need expensive cutscenes to tell stories. I don't know, we've, we've come up with a, a few, we've kind of touched on this a little bit. And instead, I'm going to say is let's reduce the cost of the game, but let's keep interactivity and narrative, so things a player does and the, the story that the player experiences about similar. So what tools are we going to give the player to build their story? And the where we give them the tools depends on the type of story we're, we're giving them. So there's two stories to, to games that, that, the player, that the player builds. There's the story of the world, which largely is seen and heard, and it's interpreted by the player. And there's the story of the player, those actions that the player does. And when I say told there, I kind of mean built as well. The told is in that the player is telling it. Not the, so the world might be something that the, the game is telling the player, but the story of the players is something that the player is telling back to the game, or back to their friends, or, or in their own head. So, story of the world. It's the world's history, right? It's the events that happen in the fictional world before the game starts. Uh, you've got a lot of control over all of this. Um, you're, as a developer, you're writing all of this. Um, for the player, they're discovering it. And they're discovering it piecemeal. They're discovering it through the gameplay. So that story, with, with a great world, that story becomes a puzzle for the player to, to, to want to, to explore. It could be as literal as in Myst, where it literally is a, a puzzle that you were going around and solving puzzle here and solving puzzle there, getting little snippets of background and putting them together in your head to come up with a whole view of what the, the world is. Um, or it could be things like I'm going to show you with, um, with environmental. Yeah? Sort of ideally, too, if your story is becoming a puzzle, it would really be cool if it was useful to have solved it. Right? So maybe as a player, if you can figure out something cool about the world, that that can be useful to you back in your game again. That's sort of the, the holy grail. So the tools you're giving the player to do that, to do exactly that, um, and these are, these are three tools that you have at your disposal in your games right now. They're really simple and easy to use, or at least the top two are. Title, character design, and your environmental design. So we're going to go through about four titles. Um, I'm going to give you the name of the, the game, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm actually giving you the cover art for the game. I'd like to know what the story is for the game. So, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. What is the story of Zombies Ate My Neighbors? <laughs> About zombies. What are zombies doing? They're eating neighbors. Where does it take place? In your neighborhood. All right. Anything else? They're coming for you. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah? In the back? Yeah, it appears that it's in like a kind of campy style. Absolutely. Mm hmm. Well, you get the, the kind of distressed woman in the front. She's being chased by very, are they slow? They're slow zombies, right? So these days we have to kind of specify. Back in the day, they were always slow. <laughs> All right, next one. The earth dies screaming. What's it about? What's that? Space? Anything else? What's that? War? Did I hear aliens? Something? Yeah. Anybody recognize the title? Yeah. Do you think the game is based on the movie? I don't, it actually isn't. So the movie's from 55, 57. Um, I don't even remember if it's, a, if it's an alien invasion movie. It's just one of those things where in the 50s you made a movie and then somebody came and put a title on it based on what titles were working that day. Um, but they licensed it from 20th Century Fox. But there's these spaceships, these, these very 80s looking spaceships. This is actually a cartridge for the 2600. Looks awful. Um, but um, yeah. The Earth dies screaming. At the, what happens at the end of the game? 
Yeah. Arcade games back in the day. They had, the, how did they end? They always ended with you dying. It was always about throwing in another quarter, playing it some more, getting more time. It, that actually came back over to the consoles, especially the 2600 days. Um, and we've moved beyond that for the most part. Um, in some cases, it's actually brought back in iOS. But yeah, Earth Dies Screaming. All right, next one. This is harder. A Mind Forever Voyaging. Ooh, what's going on there? Discovery? Discovery? Yeah. Absolutely. So you're a guide, and you, like, you imagine all these things, and if your brain interfaces with some chemical Ooh. chemicals, you see, like, yeah. sort of like, that sort of Uh-huh. And you're, like, exploring all of these virtual worlds in your head. And maybe Have you played this? <laughs> I just looked at the image. All right. No, it's good. It does help a lot. But yeah, that's exactly right. Except you're, you're wrong. You're not a guy, right? You're not a guy. You're an AI, right? I probably spoiled it for you. It's okay. It's an Infocom game. Uh, it's a text adventure from 1988. Uh, so you're exploring. Text adventures were open door, go right, open mailbox, die from Gru. Um, and in this case, it's, it's, you're going to these, you are going to all these different uh, worlds. And it's the mind. So that it had to do with an, the AI attaining sentience and figuring out what was going on and what's around it and what this, the world was like at the time. Really great game. Cool little bit of uh, tidbit of info for these kind of games. They came with these things called feelies. So elements, like physical elements that were shipped with the game box that kind of added a little bit to the game because they didn't have graphics to show you everything. Um, so in this case, it was a file folder, a pen. I think it was related to a company um, that, you were, that, you, that you thought you worked for. All right, here's a more recent game, 868 Hack. What's it about? What is 868-HACK? Yes, it's a phone number. There's no area code, right? Normally, we'd have an area code there. So it's kind of referencing back to maybe the 80s? You hacker? Maybe? Probably? Anything else we can get from the title? All right, we're going to come back. I'm going to use this example again because I love this game. Um, so titles provide clues towards setting character action even better while you're thinking of your, your title. Think about what it's like on Google. Think about marketing right now if you're making a game that's going to be marketed somewhere. Can you Google the title and come up with your game? If you can, you win. Um, it's very hard for some other games unless you add a ton of money into it. All right, next up is character design. Who's that? Sonic, what does Sonic do? He runs fast. What's he doing here? Yeah, why? Exactly right. Wow, I could have written this out. Yeah, he's pissed. He's like, what the hell? Make me move. You're not moving him on the controllers. This is idle animation. So a ton of expressive expressiveness in this idle animation. It's maybe three or four frames of animation of just him tapping his feet, looking at you, breaking the fourth wall. Um, some really great stuff you can do, you can do with characters on in that way. Um, and yeah, like, why do we know he runs? If we were, if this were like the first time we saw this and this was Christmas Day back in the time when we didn't find out about games three years before they came out, um, you get this spiky haired dude with big feet, right? He's fast and he runs. So yeah. All right, back to 868 Hacks. I said I love this game. Where, what is the player on the screen? What, what element of the screen is, is the player? Yes, which one? Yeah, the top one, right? What are you? Like what, like, what is it doing there? How do you think it interacts within the system? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Do you see, you see I, I kind of said, there's other smiley faces there, right? What do they do? Okay, so. Yeah, yeah, so those, the, the purple one, the magenta one, the purple one, the red one, those are bad guys coming to get you. Um, there's these little ones in the bottom left and right, and there's a couple in the, in the top right that say data, data siphon. That's something you leave behind. So you're leaving behind a per piece of yourself in order to claim space. It's a territory um, control game where you drop a piece of yourself to consume the things around it. You can consume the programs there, and you can use the programs there. Uh, but I really like it for this. Why do you think I like it for this? What do you th when I'm talking about hackers and I'm talking about the smiley face, what is that? 
What does that connote to you? What I hear? It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, Matt? Your identity list, right? You're anonymous. It's kind of like that. All right, so moving on. Character design. It provides clues towards your actions and your verbs, although in that last example, it was actually not very good at that part. But it does give clues towards your background, who you are, what you are, why you are, and then the feel. What's the feel of that game supposed to be? What, like, what's the feel you're supposed to have when you're playing the game? Question? Okay, cool. All right. Environmental design is that third thing I talked about. Uh, this is Portal. This is when you first start Portal. It's very clean. It's very spacious, except for that little box that you're stuck in that you eventually get out. Um, but something happens, and you see something later in the game. Does anybody remember where this is? Oh, not played it? <laughs> what, which, which level? Like three or four, or five or six, or? Have you seen a turret yet? Yeah. Okay, all right. Close our eyes, shut your ears. No. <laughs> no, it's, it's 2014, come on. Um, yeah, so this is the cake, is a lie. It's later in the game. Um, it's actually in a part of the game where everything still looks really clean, and that's as far as I'm gonna go. Um, somebody left stuff back there, and this is actually something that not a lot of players saw when it first came out, and then a lot of people, other players told each other about it later on. So it's also a game event, which I'm gonna talk about later. Um, when we're talking about the story of the player. But this is where level design and narrative design meet. So the level was created, there was a story moment that had to be placed somewhere, the narrative designer placed it in a, in a spot that was hidden, that was hard to get to, but still reachable. And when we talk about environmental storytelling, we often talk about, there's been some articles about bad graffiti in games and just how, how trite this, this has been used and we're trying, to use other, we're trying to find new ways of doing the same thing. But it's basically, there was someone in there before you is what happened there, and that's as far as I'm gonna get. All right, so environment provides clues towards what happened in the past, but also what's gonna happen in the future, and it provides clues towards the feel. So again, what's, what's the game supposed to feel like? All right, so moving on, we've got the story of the player. So there's the embedded story of the player, and what I mean by that is that's the story of the player that's pre-established by the game. Has so everybody played Ocarina of Time or heard of it or seen it? Yeah, okay. Um, so your link, you start out not knowing a lot about the world and slowly the game lets you know more about the, what, what happened in the world behind you. Um, you don't get to choose to have this friend, I don't think, right? Um, what's her name, Sarla, Saria? The game gave you this friend. Um, and actually later on, the other friends you, give, you get, the game's gonna give you those two. You don't get to choose to have them or not. And she gives you this ocarina. The ocarina is a very important aspect of the game. So in this case, it's this embedded story of here's this object that you're going to use it's going to be incredibly useful for you in later in the game to the point where you're going to get really annoyed by having to bring it up all the time um, and play the same song all the time but it's also part of the character design it's giving you what your capabilities like what are you capable of doing in this case you're capable of singing songs on the ocarina or playing songs on the ocarina that do magical effects within the game there's also emergent and this is the cooler thing this is i'm going to spend more time on this is the result of the player interacting with the system in this case, it's Sims 3. Um, and much of the systems of at least Sims 1, I, I think still in Sims, Sims 3, it's, the entire game is basically based on Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, which I'll, I'll bring up the slide. I think I bring that up in a later version. But basically, it is, there's things going, it's a sandbox game. There are things you can do in the game, and the story that's being told is the, the events and things that happen to the characters based on changes you make in the environment. You're not, not going to get the same story over and over again. You're gonna get new, new stories. Um, some big, some, like in this case, the entire game is that kind of thing. In other games, it's, a, it's more of a smaller aspect of the game. It's, a, it's a, an added bonus to the game. So the story of this player, in either of those cases, is usually told through three things, and these are three things that you can use in your games right now. Uh, game premise, or the goal of the game, is your story, right? Why are you going, where are you going? Uh, game events, so things that happen within the game, either predetermined or emergent and then micro-narratives, which I'll explain what that is in, um, at the end. So here is a premise. Again, we're at MIT, so we talk about hacking, right? Stroke genius. A true original from introversion software, the award-winning makers of Darwinia, a futuristic high-tech computer crime game for the hackerinate public. You're an agent, a freelance hacker, your clients, global multinationals, 
Steal the research data, sabotage our conflicts, launder money, or raise the evidence, even fry innocent people. They're all for a couple of your own home. In Arkham, you are the hacker elite. Find more dangerous or profitable missions. Change people's academic and even criminal records, and then siphon money from their bank account into yours. And why not construct the most deadly computer virus ever designed? But watch out, on your own line, you're being traced. Again, for the corrupted heart, where trust is weakness. PC Gamer. Yeah, so. Threw a lot of words at you, but basically every single thing inside of that game is something you can do in the game. You can hack another person, you can create a virus, you can download their personal records, you can change their personal records. Every single, single one of those things mentioned in the, in the premise in the trailer is a mechanic that is usable within the game in some form. And it's large, it's like a lot of it is a, a user interface that kind of looks like an, a, a futuristic uh, computer terminal or an interface terminal. Made by the same people, if you remember, we showed DEF CON earlier in the semester. Uh, same folks, they're really good at that kind of atmosphere and building atmosphere. Futuristic from the 90s point of view. Yeah, it's still futuristic. <laughs> um, all right, so game premise, that's an easy one to get across, basically. It's just think about all the things that you do in the game, all those things, when, when you put them together one by one, that is the story that the player is gonna be telling when they play your game. Um, so think of it, in a, and in that case, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're using a genre convention, and they're using some tropes that you might already know. Tropes can be useful, tropes can be baggage. Tropes are usually baggage. Um, but genre conventions are great, um, especially when it's just, I wanna get this theme across to you. I wanna get this like, hard punch of, you know exactly what you need to do. I don't need to explain the game to you because you know what a hacker is supposed to do. That's where those things are incredibly useful. Whoops. Give me my slides. All right, game events. Has anybody played Final Fantasy IV? Or two, if you played the original? Or the US version, I mean? So there is a character called Rydia the Summoner. That is not what she looked like in the game. That was the, the illustration that, that she looked like. She looked like a very small, uh, green-haired person. Um, she is a summoner. She has magic powers. What kind of magic powers are common in the Final Fantasy series? What's the three basics? Or, or, blue, or, yeah, fire, ice, and thunder. Yeah, exactly right. Um, mo and sh I th so she's a summoner, but she has those are black mage powers. Pretty common. Most characters would have those three, char those three powers. Except for her. She hates fire. And you don't have fire for, for a good part of the game. There's a moment in the game, you're at Mount Hob. There's, it's a, an ice mountain. You need to get through. Yeah, you can kind of see ice in the background there. Um, you need to get through the, the, the cave. And there's a story moment. One of the characters, Cecil, on the left there says, she's afraid of fire because her village was destroyed in a fire. And you, and you see the, a snippet of this early in the game, and you get moments that you've, she's got this backstory where it's traumatic past, it's preventing her from doing a thing. Again, this is a trope that's pretty common. Uh, after this point, they're all like, yeah, you can do it. You're awesome. You're great. And then she gets fire. And now, all of a sudden, you've got the fire skill for this character for the rest of the game. Um, anytime you play the game after that and you're using fire, there's some part of you that might be remembering this story moment and how important the story moment was. And it's being linked back into the game mechanics really, really well. well. But it always happens. Every time you play the game, that's embedded. That's always going to happen. One more video. Here is an emergent event. Has anybody seen this video? Everybody recognizes the game, though, yeah? Hi, guys. And just a quick video here. Um, all you do is you put it in the center here like this, 
are always or most of all. How did you know that was going to happen? within the game that fire burns pretty much anything it touches that's wood and it just travels, right? Um, you set this little system up, you use it the way you use it, and in this case, he tried to tell a story of building a fire and it turned out he burned his house down. Um, you also see this in Minecraft, uh, the, the creepers. When, a, when everybody hears that hiss of a creeper, especially after you've, after you've built something, you've got this tension, you've got this moment of panic. That's a, that's a, a memorable game event that you're gonna tell another person after you've played the game. Um, and especially these days, you might, you're going to record it onto YouTube and put it on, online. This was, I think, from 2010, because it's an alpha build of Minecraft. All right, continuing on the theme, here's The Sims. Has anybody had this happen to them in The Sims? They're just trying to have a party. They're trying to meet their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? <laughs> They're trying to love and belong to each other and build some esteem and self-actualize themselves, but they forgot about the safety part of it. And so the, event, the oven blew up, and their fire happened, and they all burned and died. Um, common, common trope is with the Sims. So another example I love. Um, did anybody play Fire Cry 2? Yeah? Um, you've, so fire exists in Far Cry 2. I love fire. Um, Far Cry 2 takes place in Africa. You're a mercenary. Um, you're going to um, find a warlord and kill him at the end of the game. That's basically what you're trying to do. Um, you have different ways of doing that, different means of doing that. Um, you are in a savanna, it's very dry, you can burn the savanna, and it's great. Um, and you can use that to, to get past like a, um, a machine gun emplacement or set a trap for somebody, um, an in-game character, not, not a, another PC, but in-game. Um, in an early version of this, uh, an early test, playtesters set fire to the savanna, and then a few 10, 15, 20 minutes later, it said, okay, you won the game. What happened? Fire spread. The boss was set in the fire, in, in, the, in, the, in dry grass. The fire spread all the way through the, the, the game, the, the many, many miles, square miles of gameplay, and it killed the boss and ended the game. I really wish they kept that in, or a version of that. They ended up um, reducing the, the, the spread of fire because of that, and they moved the, the character from the... But that's a, that's a game event they could have capitalized on. That's, an emerg that's a piece of emergent storytelling that's going on that People tell this story to each other uh, in the developer circles. I heard about this in GDC um, the year after this came out. Uh, it's a great one. So that's game events. Um, next up, mi micro-narratives. Um, these are similar but different. Uh, micro-narrative is basically a little bit of storytelling inside of the game that, again, really, really small. So maybe it's an animation. In this case, this is Jet Set Willy. Um, in Jet Set Willy, you are a rich guy. You made all your money in the previous game uh, by mining. And you came home, and you invited a bunch of friends to your house, and you had this awesome raucous party, and you trashed the place. And unfortunately, you rent. You rent a mansion instead of buying the mansion. And you're, you're trying to go to bed, and your landlady is just like, no, you don't get to go to bed. You don't get to sleep. You've got to clean all this stuff up. She doesn't say any of that, though. This is all she does. Just, she's standing in front of the bed. She's going, that. Very, this is for the ZX Spectrum. So a really, um, I think it had... 64K of RAM, maybe? You could look that up. Maybe it's 8K. It's really small. Um, really bad keys, really bad uh, keyboard. Um, not a lot of graphics, but that, that version is actually a later version. I couldn't find. Um, this is the closest thing we found for what it, what it originally looked like. But you can really, there's character design there, but it's also just saying, you know, no, you, you can't come back here. 16K at launch. Six, when did they go up Okay. All right. So, now I've spewed all this out, what can you do with all this? And so, the next I'm gonna show an example of a game created last semester by a, a team in this class uh, for the final project. Um, 
they made a game called Sugar Rush. What's the game about? First, what's the title? Well, I told the title. Sugar Rush. What's the game about? Yeah. Candy, 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 candy. Look at him. All that candy. And it's a kid. So, title, character design, all working really well right there. Here's the game premise. One day, strange leafy beasts spawned from four mysterious portals, and they plundered the villages, terrorizing Candyland. What do you think you're going to have to do? Kill the vegetables. Um, and they're mean, because look at them, so mean. Um, now, when we say, like we said, don't use cutscenes, that doesn't mean we say don't use exposition. Um, a simple screen with a little bit of instructions, like basically this is, I, we told them to have an instruction screen. This was part of their instruction screen. They had the screen that says these are the keys, but they also, this is what you do. Um, really, really useful. It's for, we want something that fulfills that for your game the way it's necessary for your game. Um, the difference between a game that has something like this and doesn't have something like this is basically it's a level of polish. A game that has a little bit of exposition like this feels a little bit more concrete. Um, there's, it just feels like there's, there's more, it's more complete, there's more thought put into it. Um, it just feels a little bit richer. Um, it's still playable without it. It doesn't need this screen, but the screen's really, really helpful. And the gameplay itself. It has mechanics that are consistent with the design. Um, you are a kid. You are fighting a tomato. What do you fight with? You have weapons. What are your weapons made out of? Candy. How do you heal yourself? You eat candy. How do you make new weapons? You combine and craft candy. Everything's revolving around that, that premise of candy is, is, is the world. You are the lone human being in this world that we see. Um, and so it's not like Adventure Time, you're not harvesting candy from candy people. Um, but, and, you're, and the weird thing about it, I think you, when you kill vegetables, you take the candy from them. Maybe they're stealing your candy. There's, yeah, they, you are stealing your candy, so it's plundering. Aha, uh -huh, they thought ahead. Um, and yeah, the health points. What are the health points called, if you can read it? Yeah. Really simple stuff. Really, really simple. Just theming it, thinking about what you call things, how you call things, where you place things, what your verbs you're using. All that ties into, into the game. All right, so um, another, here's another student game. game. It's actually made um, by a larger team over the course of a summer, so they actually had nine weeks to make the, team, make the game. And they had dedicated artists um, on this game. Um, but there's a game called Gumbeat, which we have on our website there. Um, you are a little girl going around chewing bubblegum in this idyllic land that I don't think there's no, there's an information sign up there if it said it'd say keep the place clean. Basically, gum's not allowed, it's not clean. Um, but you go around, you recruit people. You blow bubblegum in front of them, they say, pop the bubble. You pop it, they're like, sweet, I'm joining you. And then they travel, they trail behind you. And you see on the right there, a little guard. Metal Gear Solid style, he's got a zone of, of sight, line of sight. If he sees you, he's going to chase you down and hit you. Early in the development, someone, so if you um, put, if you pop the bubble on somebody, like on your, on your friend, they'll get stuck with gum. If you pop the bubble on the guard, they'll get stuck with gum and they'll, they'll not be able to move. But we found if you put the bubble, the gum on the, on the guard, and you have a guard, basically look, another, a second guard looking for that guard, for, for people, all the guard that all the AI was was if gum attack. Guard with gum. Found the guard, attacked. Not they didn't even think about this. This wasn't a feature they were they were planning. It just happened. And it happened in the space of gameplay and of playtesting. Just like that fire in, in Far Cry 2. Except in this case, they're like, that's really freaking awesome. We're gonna polish the crap out of that and make that a, a, a key feature or a, a really interesting feature in the game. We're not gonna tell the player how to do that. But we are going to create a level design that encourages the player to, to experiment with that. Um, so that's where you get that kind of gameplay. So playtesting is a way to discover emergent game events. So that's why we're asking to playtest your game, especially with people who are not you, is to see what the, you've, you've created this amazing possibility space. You can't explore the entire thing on your own. They might see something and they might, and not knowing what the game is possible to do and what you should be doing in the game, they might come up with some cool things to do in the game. So playtesting is key. Lastly, um, not a student game, but um, another favorite game of mine, FTL. Um, there is a story to FTL that's really complicated, and I'm not asking you to try to, to emulate that sort of thing. It's really hard. 
It's a lot of detail, it's a lot of writing, a lot of thought being put into this randomized event thing. But there's a feature in the game that I'm showing here right now that is only used on this screen. That's probably kind of, it was, it was probably a high price for them to put the feature in. Can you, maybe you can't read it, actually you can't read it that well. Basically you can change the name of the characters. This is something that strategy games have had for a long period of time. Um, I think we remember it through XCOM um, back in 93, 94. Um, or earlier? No, 94. Um, basically, you name your characters. If you name your characters, you might be more inclined to make stories of their gameplay. So I've got my ship is the good ship game lab with my buddies Andrew, Philip, and Sarah, and we're going to be awesome and take down... Are you taking down the Empire? I could never remember. Empire or Rebel? Are you a Rebel or are you the Empire? You are the rebel, okay. Yeah, you're the empire. You're trying to take down the rebels. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, one thing that sometimes happens with this game, though, some players are going to optimize it. What do they name their characters? Pilot, shields, engines. Who's dying? Looks like the pilot's dying. How do you know? It's named Pilot. Um, I forget if you can, I don't think you can rename characters when you bring, when you, when you bring them back onto your ship. I should have looked that up. If anybody plays, take a look at that. But you can bring it, you can get new characters later on. Um, whether or not you can name them or not, you might name them, you might not name them. But either way, even if you give, they, they've spent a lot of time and money putting this feature in, some players aren't going to use it. So what do you do? You blow shit up. Um, the, the game is, is basically about um, traveling the ship, things catch on fire, and hopefully, maybe they're not concerned about pilot, but they are concerned about their ship. So give them these, these cool little game events to, to keep them going. So one of the interesting things about this kind of story is that it's actually, it's, for all that you're talking about, it does take time and money and stuff to create it, but it's actually pretty cheap to be able to let players name their characters. But it's even cheaper to do what FTL did at the beginning, where they automatically name all your characters. Like when you, when you get a random human, the character isn't named human number 38. The character is named Fred or, or, or something. And that was actually originally from their Kickstarter. Backers got to have their names in, which is kind of cool. But it's actually worth doing, because there are certain kinds of players who will really get into those names in a way that you don't expect. I've got two friends who really get into their games. Um, one, Mark LeBlanc, was playing XCOM. And I know you've probably, some of you have seen the more recent XCOM, I assume but maybe not the old one. So you can name your characters or whatnot, and it gives, gives you some names that you can use. Um, he had went through the entire game, and this is you know, back when the games were hard, um, so 40 to 60 hours of gameplay, and he had a squad of super uber soldiers, and he, they all had names, and he didn't quite have personalities for them, but they were kind of like personalities. And the final, second to final battle, one of his top A squad people was, got a broken leg or something. And he was like, oh, that's really annoying because I'm going to Mars tomorrow. Well, all of my guys that are high level are gone. But I've got this guy's really cool equipment. Like he's got the laser rifle of doom and the super uber armor. And so he went to his second string squad, you know, the guys who are second level. And he's like, you, suit up, son, you're going to Mars. <laughs> Which for him was a story and it was all inside his head. The game didn't make that. The game did not make that story. The designers could not have anticipated that story. But in his head, because he's the kind of player who really tried to personify his characters a little bit, it was actually a really big thing for him. Similarly, another one of my friends, who um, will probably come in for a lecture later, Laura Baldwin, is playing XCOM as well, basically the same game. She, in her head, kept all the default names. The default names was a randomized first name and a randomized last name. And in her head, when she saw the same last name, she assumed that meant the characters were related. Now, of course, this meant nothing in the game. The game didn't care. But here are the two brothers. Here are the two sisters. Here's the married couple. And so apparently in the final, final battle, you've got, you're going in to destroy the big bad thing. And the big bad thing does horrible psychic damage to all of your soldiers on the map every turn. And she was losing horribly. And the husband and wife team made it into the final room with the big brain alien. And the wife runs in to, and discovers the final bat boss. And in XCOM, it didn't, you had movement points. So she went in and revealed the fog of war. Here's the bad guy. She has not enough movement points to, to, get, to run away. And the husband, meanwhile, is out the doorway with a rocket launcher. And so apparently, Laura, the way she tells it, she spent about 15 minutes having a conversation between these two characters. 
as the husband's like, I've got a rocket launcher, get out of the way, honey. And she's like, I don't have enough movement points. Fire the rocket. I can't. I'll kill you. I'm going to die anyway. Fire the rocket. And this goes back and forth until finally she decides, all right, boom, fires the rocket, kills the person next to the big bad guy, and wins the game. But again, this is because you had a player who was very cooperative, something as simple as the names actually helped. Now, you can't guarantee you're going to get players like that, but those players do exist. And if it's easy to give them the opportunity to have that awesome experience that she tells 20 years later, <laughs> do it. It's relatively cheap. All right, that's it for lecture. Any questions about any of this stuff and how it applies to your games? We have an idea what they can do in their game right now, just thinking about any of this? Has anybody thought about their title at least? Yeah, it's Snap. Okay. All right, so take a couple minutes. Um, it's 2.03 right now. Break. Um, work in your teams, whatever that may be. We've got a test coming in at 3, so be ready for the test at 3. I'll remind you maybe five minutes or beforehand. So everyone, raise your hand if you are ready to test. If, at a workstation, if you are ready to test. So I can count off. Two, three, four. One, two, one, two, kind of. All right. We'll take, you get two more minutes. Philip, you want to talk to? Um, can I speak to, to Ed's students? I don't know if you're like scattered around, but it will help if uh, you could meet up here. Uh, you want to know? Yeah, yeah, you can yeah, come, 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 come yeah, here. Yeah. So, so I just want, for the first thing I want to say is thank you so much for coming. And uh, you may have overheard what Rick was saying earlier. This is going to be our first digital play test for the games. And there are five games. Some of the teams have multiple, uh, uh, stations and uh, there's probably not going to be enough computers for every single one of you who are here. So some of you may be waiting in line, but you know, um, please be patient with with us, and we'll hope to get your feedback on these one or two games, um, if not more. Um, it's good uh, for you to give us uh, uh, feedback while you are playing the game. So if you are, uh, the, the, the students will get more specific about the kind of feedback that they need. But you know, if something's frustrating, if something's confusing, if something's intriguing, or, some, or you're really, you, you really think something lo lo looks cool or, or, or is an interesting de decision, try to verbalize it so that we can actually realize that something's working or something's not working. Um, don't worry about our egos at this point. We absolutely need um, the harshest criticism that you can possibly give us at this point because it's easy for us to change things at this point of our project. If, you, if we learned about the same things that bother you two weeks from now, uh, reversing all of those changes is going to be harder. So please, please be harsh now. Um, other than that, um, yeah, if anything is confusing, do, of course, vocalize it. Um, but uh, the people who are uh, the, the people who are making the game may not tell you what to do next because they want to see if you can figure it out. And uh, now, if, if you can't figure it out, that's not a problem with you. That's a problem with the game. But they need to be able to see you sort of like muddle through what's already there uh, in order to figure out how to fix it later. So if you do start getting frustrated, of course, you can always say, "I'm done with this game and move on to another uh, to another game." Um, huh? That's a very valid database. Yeah, that's a very valid database. It's like, I'm done. No, no more. Uh, that's, and that's absolutely fine. It would be great to be able to then tell the, other, uh, the students why, why you're done, right? Um, maybe it's because you, you, you feel like you've seen everything that there is to see into a game. And that's very different from, I have no idea what's going on. That's two different reasons to leave a game. And they need to know what that reason is. Um, otherwise, uh, this, by the way, is uh, creating video games. Uh, it is six. Oh, what, what's, what's the course number? Six six zero seven seven three or CMS six one one. It is a so the course says joint humanities and uh, computer science, 
and it runs for this full semester. Students actually work on four projects for the entire semester, but the first three are really, really short, like two-week projects, and this is kind of like the mega big project. So, um, yeah, if you have questions about the class, feel free to grab us with the instructors. We can answer those questions for you. Yep, this is Rick. I'm Philip. You all know Ed and, uh, and, and Sarah and Polina are over there. Um, just look for any one of us and uh, we'll be happy to help. Okay. So, playtest uh, workstation. Stand up if you are a computer that someone can come to to play your game. And testers in the back, stand up if you are a test station. And testers, please go find a standing person and play their game. See what's currently active on the side. Okay. It's no. going to come up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so for improvements, it's like I figured out what to do. I think the instructions are clear this time.